You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today we have Keith Spencer, the author of People's History of Silicon Valley, to talk to us about what the evil overlords in Silicon Valley are up to. So Keith, what inspired you to write your book? So my family goes back to the Silicon Valley region before it was called that. So particularly my grandfather, he was unlike his ancestors who also lived there. I do my grandfather pretty well. He was born in kind of the Mountain View area and grew up in San Jose too. And he lived partly on an orchard that his grandparents had in San Jose and partly on an orchard that his dad had in Mountain View. And as I was a kid, I got to really see how much he suffered as a result of never owning property there. And also sort of, I got to see Silicon Valley through his eyes, which is he, he would not, I don't think he really even would think of where he lived in Silicon Valley. To him, it was still the Valley of Heart's Delight, which is the name of that region prior to sort of land that runs along the 101 between San Francisco and San Jose, um, which was called that because of all the beautiful blooming orchards along the way. And, you know, he was somebody who, he actually, it's interesting, he actually died last week. So he was around all the way till last week. He had a really interesting life and he saw California in a very different way. He told me about when he was a kid in Mountain View, how there were Okies, you know, refugees from the Dust Bowl from Oklahoma in his grammar school class, in Mountain View Grammar School. And he actually remembers how they would wear grain sacks as dresses, re- grain sacks reconstitute as dresses to school. And it was really hard on me as sort of a kid watching what happened to him, how he would have to move into smaller and smaller houses um, because rents would keep going up in the re- place he was in, which would be usually the place he lived longest. And then he'd move to somewhere else in Silicon Valley that he had less of a connection to and didn't know as well, and then was smaller. And then ultimately, he got evicted from his place in um, Menlo Park and when he was 90. And he moved to Chico, California, thinking that because he was a veteran of World War II, he could get a sort of good deal on a home there. And it turned out that moving to a place he'd never lived was kind of the thing that undid him sort of stress-wise. He, he was always a very happy person, and he became extremely stressed out. He lost his memory. He went from being very lucid to forgetting where he was, and it kind of ended the happy portion of his life. So he sort of was indirectly had his life kind of destroyed by, by gentrification. and. I think watching what happened to him and watching, you know, the other parts of my family who left California earlier than him made me think really critically from a young age about, you know, what is actually happening here? What is kind of the you know, effect of this industry being here? And how does it, you know, wreak havoc on the social fabric? That's really interesting. And your book does not quite begin in California, but it begins in Congo. That's true. Can you explain the connection? <laughs> Yeah, that's true. So, so one of the big things I tried to do in the book was undo this myth that, you know, I think when most of us think of, when most of us hear the phrase Silicon Valley, you probably picture some probably men in hoodies or something, you know, sitting in like a really mid-century sort of, you know, or maybe postmodern architecture office, minimalist, clean, and they probably have a, a big fancy snack machine and they're probably just chilling and relaxing. And that's the myth, right? That this is what Silicon Valley is. It's a bunch of well-heeled, you know, programmer, programmers maybe sitting around. And I really wanted to undo that, that myth, like, you know, the majority of the labor and maybe not just labor, but the means of profit, which I'll explain more later, don't come from people who look like that. You know, 
And the vast majority of the people who sort of are part of the supply chain that produces Silicon Valley products or produces software even don't look like that caricature. And so the Congo is, is really a really kind of a pivotal place for, you know, it, it's just as much part of Silicon Valley as Cupertino is because the Congo is where a lot of the world supply of the mineral tantalum comes from. And tantalum is crucial for a lot of radio signal applications. It's using, tra- it's using transmitters, cell phones and stuff. It's, it's a rare metal. I think it's a rare earth metal. It's a, it's a rare metal. And the mining of it is, you know, because of conflict in the Congo, which is partly because of Silicon Valley itself, <laughs> that it's, you know, a lot of it is mined by people who are essentially indentured servants. The man you mentioned, he was a farmer and then he had to, like, it was almost like a gig economy because he had to do his own mining license. And yeah. so can you talk a little bit about that man? Yeah. So if, I, if I'm going to, let's see, I'll, let's remember the, the full story. Audrey Bialura was his name, and he was at, at the Fungamwaka mine. And he came there because rebels had stolen his cattle, and so he, he couldn't work as a farmer anymore. And so he was going to try to, you know, mine some Colton. And he, but, but he had to borrow money from his boss to pay for his mining license and for his rent and his food. And so, so right, so that's what I, when I was said, you know, kind of indentured servitude. I mean, that sounds a lot, a lot like it. You know, and he also said that he couldn't go home because of his debts. So it's like people are kind of driven by circumstance into mining off. And tantalum mining, you know, it's kind of, it's not like asbestos mining. It's not in, in terms of, it's, it's quite hazardous, but it's not as hazardous as something really bad like asbestos. But it's like you're, you're kind of panning in the mud um, all day and, and kind of moving these muddy rocks around and stuff. And yeah, there, you're, you're right. You're right uh, that there's this really funny parallel to a lot of gig workers nowadays. Like, people, you know, there's a lot of, like a lot of what Silicon Valley does, right, is try to automate jobs in the first world and a lot of the people whose jobs maybe get automated or they become redundant um, or they lose their job because a lot of service and retail jobs go online they end up doing gig economy type stuff and strangely enough another parallel is like a lot of the gig economy type companies they don't have enough people there aren't enough people out there who own their own car who can be uber drivers so uber started you know a program that was very similar to what audrey bialura had in the Congo, where, you know, you can rent a car sort of through Uber, and every hour that you work, it like pays a portion of your wage straight to Uber, right? So it's like, they own the car as well, and they're just kind of leasing or renting it back to you. And then, you know, if, if you stop working for Uber, you probably lose the car. There's different schemes, but in most of the case, I think that's what happens. So yeah, there's an interesting parallel there between, and, and, you know, and also, you know, suffice to say, I mean, you know, why were the rebels in Audrey Buller's, you know, village that that stole his cattle i mean that's sort of because of you know like in the imperial first world right i mean that's because of imperialism in the first world of the kind that makes it so that the congo can be this extremely mineral rich place but none of the wealth from that ever goes really back to the people there just a siphoned off for the first world absolutely and then your story goes to china where you talk about foxconn so do you want to elaborate on that yeah happy to yeah so a lot of the raw mineral extraction, you know, happens and may, may happen in a place like the Congo. But the actual assembly of a lot of the gadgets, Silicon Valley, the hardware, happens in places like China, where the wages are obviously much lower than the United States. And there are these kind of you know, mega factories. Foxconn is very famous for being one of these kind of mega factories where the stories of what it's like on the Foxconn campus are kind of just incredible. I mean, these factories are kind of the size of cities. 
and they have all the things you have in cities like dorms and shops and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of like company towns. And I believe Fox Hunt overall has 1.4 million employees. I think that's what it is, something like that, which is like, you know, more than 10 times bigger than Apple, for instance, which is one of its main subcontractors. So I told a story in the book about Tian Yu, who had a similar, well, you know, she was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was, it was sort of indentured servitude or something the way that what happened to Audrey Ballura was, but, you know, she was from a, a rural part of China and, you know, she saw that she could pro- hope that she could make more money working for Foxconn and she became an assembly line worker and she got paid the minimum wage. And, you know, her story is really heartbreaking, actually. I mean, I mean, she, it, as you can imagine with the huge bureaucracies, there was some kind of administrative error that they couldn't correct and she didn't really have the power to fix it involved her paycheck and she wasn't getting paid and she spent like a day trying to figure it out and she had moved to this strange place she had no friends she's working 12-hour days she was restricted from going to the bathroom she was really just miserable here and she ended up attempting suicide and you know these are these are the kinds of conditions that gadgets like iphones and ipads and computers are made under and they're certainly not certainly also not what we think of when we think of the clean lines and sleek innovative stereotypes about what Silicon Valley's gadgetry is. For me, the other interesting progression was when you then talked about some place in UK with the Amazon warehouse. Right. So what happened there? Yeah, so we've all heard lots of different stories about Amazon um, warehouses over the years. But I, th- I think what was what's particularly interesting about this story, and this is actually, I should, I should note, this isn't just something Amazon does, like other employees are known to do this. But or other employers are known to do this. But kind of having a division between temp employees and permanent employees and exploiting the, you know, competition between the two or the sort of natural jealousy one cast might have over the others to try to, you know, compel the temps to work harder. And like a lot of these types of Amazon fulfillment jobs, it's, it's brutal conditions. The One of the people that's profiled in the book, you know, I think said that, you know, they were working 10 and a half hour shifts and it was very much a like, walking like miles and miles a day. I think, you know, um, just, just kind of like that, that type of working to the bone type labor. And also, you know, the, the, the cherry on top of it all was that this type of fulfillment warehouse labor is, is really, as, as the people who work there test, it, it's, it's like a dead end job. Like you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to get, move up the ladder somewhere else after it. And, 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 you know, Amazon, Amazon seems to intentionally put a lot of these, these fulfillment centers in places that they know are kind of parts of the country where people might be more desperate for work and sort of take advantage of people, exploit them more, pay them lower wages. The one that I profiled the book was in Swansea, Wales, which is like kind of like the rust belt of um, the UK, you might call it. Well, I guess I'm going to skip a little bit around in your book, but the fact that you mentioned the so-called like incentives to work, there was a section that stood out for me where you talked about an Apple manager in, I believe, 1982 that forced people to work till like six in the morning or something. Yeah, yeah. That story is really under told when people think about the history of Apple, isn't it? Yeah. So how was that legal? <laughs> yeah, right. So that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question too. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it really is. I mean, I, I believe that if you're a salaried employee, you know, you, technically you may not have 
set hours. And, and I, there's a culture, there's always cultures of, of work, especially if you're not unionized, right? You, you're more apt to be exploited and not have, I mean, not have uh, protections that might stop you from being overworked like, like those people were when they were working on, um, you know, it was, let's see, this is the 90s. So it was something, it was something like um, the, the, the Newton or some, some older, um, you know, Apple device. But, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, a lot of people who work as, as um, programmers, especially, it's very dependent on the industry, but there can be a huge amount of sort of, you know, internal competition to just be extremely overworked in this way to, to meet these crunch times. Right now, currently, there's been a lot of talk about this for the game industry, like video game industry, because video game industry is notorious for what they call crunch, or it's called crunch. Gosh, actually, don't quote me on that. I might, I might have misremembered, but, but it's like the period of time before a game is like about to be released when everybody has to be really overworked and people are, you know, a lot of people are like pulling all-nighters like all the time to try to, to try to do the last bits of code. And gaming industry is interesting because a lot of people go there because it's, it's, it's more artistic. It's more artistic than working in like ad tech or something like that, which is where a lot of Silicon Valley jobs are. And the wages are a little lower and they can, they know the people, the video game industry kind of knows that they can exploit their workers more because they're, they're kind of more in it for love than other industries too. Um, and Apple seemed to be, I, I get the sense that Apple was like that too in the nineties. I don't know as much now and it's much bigger now, but that, yeah, that really sad story of that um, software engineer committed suicide, like at Apple, you know, he was extremely overworked and uh, you know, it's like, Steve Jobs did seem to kind of run it like a cult a little bit. Like, you know, you're privileged to work here. Like I am an artist and you're working for me and making incredible things and work as much as you can to make that happen. Like that was kind of his attitude while he was CEO. Yeah. I don't even know how like that ideology gets imbibed into every tech worker inside of Apple. So can you think to people what new and how like all this tech industry became clustered around that area yeah sure yeah so so it's it's uh the short story is that there was a lot of kind of like there were some military contractors kind of in the south bay as it's called and there was also during during world war ii there was like radio like radio manufacturing and that, that means you know you know like there's a lot of need for radio applications for you know communication during wartime and then that sort of, you know, transitioned naturally into like semiconductors. Um, it's sort of this, you know, the, the idea that there was like a nascent electronics industry, which was a big part of what led it to becoming Silicon Valley today. There was also at Stanford, there's this kind of like a prototype of what we would call like a public-private partnership nowadays. But um, Stanford University kind of created this project to like intentionally cultivate and sort of like incubate, you know, or like electronics or or actually it was more like like computer businesses there it, it's funny because there was kind of there's kind of a, a point in history where the the line between you know what is electronics and what is computers is, is a little vague like if you're making a, an integrated circuit is that a computer or not but anyway so yeah that's the short history of it there's a lot that's it's 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 interesting because it's a fairly complicated story and a lot of it you know it wasn't all luck but it was it was it was chance say that you know companies like Intel or, or the predecessor of Intel, um, like the different semiconductor companies um, kind of thrived there because there certainly were those types of companies elsewhere in the country. And, you know, as we know, there's like um, Seattle too and Albuquerque for a while were also hubs of this kind of stuff. So yeah, it was kind of a confluence of a few things, but Stanford and the presence of the radio and military defense industries there were, were kind of the biggies that led to it 
evolving into what it is now. Um, From there, how did it evolve to venture capitalists funding a lot of startups kind of culture? Yeah, right. That's a good question. That's a good question. You know, I've never, hmm, I've never, thought, I've never been asked that sort of that specifically. You know, okay. So this is like my my, my understanding of things like venture capital is that things like that kind of have more to do with like financialization of the economy, like like in the eighties, late seventies, eighties, where like you know I think there was this big shift where the percentage of the economy, like 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 deregulation, led to the percentage of the American economy that was well, that was finance. To become much much greater and like if you have an economy that is you know just people with huge buckets of money trying to make more of it you end up with more of this kind of investor venture capital culture and you know part of what made silicon valley i think such a valuable industry right i mean what what made it such a valuable industry in the beginning part of it is that a lot of what it did was was automation was making work more efficient right making it so you needed fewer jobs or you could do or one person could make more profit for their employer, right? And that kind of stuff is extremely valuable. And it was like later, you know, I mean, in the 90s, obviously it started to supplant other industries, right? Like, I mean, and just kind of, you know, those industries stayed intact, but Silicon Valley either took a cut off the top or just they were digital versions of what that was previously, right? So, I mean, Amazon is just a department store, but online. Um, and, you know, Google News and Facebook, well, you know, they basically just took all the newspaper ad revenue and all the classified ad revenue and they are doing the same, you know, they just took all that revenue. That, that revenue is not going to newspapers anymore. People don't look at classifieds in newspapers and file them anymore. They look at them on Facebook and people don't pay money for print ads in newspaper quite as much as they used to. They just advertise on places like Facebook and Google News. So yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it's like kind of a mix. I think it's a mix of deregulation and the results of that, that the financialization of the economy that produces these big pots of money in, in combination with a specific way that Silicon Valley kind of like has taken over or a lot of a lot of different industries. Excuse me, as a follow-up to that, is there like a way of actually tracking how much of it is startup venture capital versus military contracts like that are, I mean, I, I know that you kind of went through the history of Silicon yeah. Valley being mostly a state sort of funded project military funded backing so i mean is there right. any way to measure the split that's happening nowadays that's an interesting question i mean i'm sure that some economists have i haven't seen that type of data but i so we actually actually tell me so like more specifically do you mean like what percentage of say the tech industry is engaged in like defense spending or is is actually doing defense related projects right versus what percent isn't or something like that yeah. 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 That is a really good question. Um, yeah, I would, I would love to see that type of thing, but I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like it's still more meat and potatoes, just NSA pumping Facebook stock up or something. I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, you know, that's another interesting thing to think about sometimes too, is like a lot of times there's a lot of overlap and, 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 you know, I, I think, I believe that the CIA CIA, the Defense Department. I know the Defense Department has a fund that they invest in different startups and stuff like that. You know, you know, part of the point of those types of investments is like Silicon Valley is very useful in terms of producing tools to surveil, oppress, um, you know, extend the reach of authority. States and militaries are really interested in that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of times they, they, these companies just kind of do for them things that they would have wanted to do before. I mean, like, you know, 
there was this like idea in sci-fi and fiction for centuries that you know the government was trying to you know create some massive spy network that would it could track and follow you at any second but actually private industries do that just fine and the government will take advantage of them when they can but you know not not only do, do a lot of different silicon valley companies do that already but like you know they've compelled consumers to do it willingly oh absolutely and to me the scary part is that the privatization so there's no oversight like you don't even know what data they're taking right so that's i guess a lot of it is we just don't know what google knows for well not what's stored on some like database in a google server right yeah right i mean that's um i think i think one of the i think the saving grace of you know if, if you're out there and you're someone who is you know like me quite paranoid about what type of personal information and private information you know corporations have about you the saving grace of it is that these companies have managed to compel us to create and collect so much data that it's become the task of sifting through it is so monumental now that like most of the data that's recorded no probably not many humans will ever really look at it if you're if you're lucky <laughs> you know um, they could but yeah it's it, it, it's just, it's just creepy to think about if somebody targets you or if somebody hacks you or if you become on the government or some corporation's radar just the the capacity with which you could sort of create, have a psychological profile created of you or figure out how to track you or something like that. And there's evidence of that happening, like I wrote in the book. Uber is one of the worst offenders in that kind of thing. Like they, they actually made an, an app that, they, they made a sort of secret internal sub app that would stop regulators from getting Uber rides. So like they identified the people who were, were trying to regulate Uber. It was called, and, and then they had another one that tracked journalists too. They tried, they- Creepy. It, yeah, so, so, so people were trying to report on Uber. So. That, you know, and that feels more, you know, almost quite violent to me as somebody who writes about this stuff. I'm always paranoid that something, you know, that I'll be on the radar of one of these companies and they'll sort of track me a whole bunch or something. I mean, who knows? I, maybe they are already. <laughs> I don't know. They probably do. <laughs> mm -hmm. For me, one of the very interesting parts of your book was where you talk about how they get content where it's being pumped. So you're yeah. not getting what you need as a human being, but what they think gets the most clicks. How did that evolution right. happen? Right, right. That's a good question. So, yeah. Okay. So, like, so yeah. So, how did how did how did the modern content mills of the internet get created, and how did we get to this weird space with the way social media exists and created? So, first of all, um, I'll, I'll I'll speak first to like you know news. Speak first to news. Because that's, you know, I work in that industry now and it, I've seen some of this happen as it does. So with, it's, it's, it's really kind of, the news thing is also really fast. It's a really fascinating study in kind of news and media culture. So, you know, before the internet, the way that journalism worked was that you could watch the news on TV, maybe, that's probably free. And that journalism is supported by the ad, the, the, you know, the ads, the ad time. So people, so people buy advertisements and that pays for the news. Or, you know, there were free weekly magazines like The Village Voice, and they were a little more ad-heavy than something like a paper you buy, but also supported by a free ad model. And then there was magazines and newspapers that you'd pay money for. And so you pay $5 for time. You pay $2 for the Washington Post or something. And then when you, when you make that transaction, you know, the newspaper gets the money. So that's all well and good. And then the thing about the internet is that no money, you know, most news online is free. And then, and then no money really changes hands except via, you know, advertising money. And then on top of that, 
a lot of the flow of news, like what people read and what you're likely to see is controlled by opaque algorithms that Facebook and Google, and to some extent Twitter, but mostly Facebook and Google, have in control. So, you know, there's some very complicated social decisions being made behind closed doors just on Facebook's campus that overnight can bankrupt news outlets because, you know, in the, in the case of news, say, say that you're online and you see a hundred different stories about the latest thing Trump did. None of those outlets make any money off that story till you click on it, till you go to their page, right? So if, if you're confronted with a whole bunch of stories on the same topic, you're going to end up clicking on the one that is most compelling to you, right? And again, this is different than before when you would like buy a newspaper or magazine on a news rack or something, right? Because once you, when you buy that thing, the headline is already written. The headline can be purely informative because the headline isn't what makes you, know, you money, except for maybe the headlines in the front of the newspaper or whatever, because that's what you see on the stand. But aside from that, the headlines are just sort of purely informative. So headline culture changed completely as a result, because if you're confronted with all these different things about the same story, you're going to click on the, the most exciting one. A big pioneer of this was a site called Upworthy, which I think sort of barely exists anymore. Um, ironically, it was undone by a Facebook algorithm change. But one of the things that they figured out that no one had really figured out before, it was this idea of um, what's called the curiosity gap. So the curiosity gap is where you don't quite tell the reader everything that is happening in a story because you, you, you want them to like click it so they understand more. So there's some upworthy headlines. I'm just remembering off the top of my head this weren't exactly what they were, but it'd be something like, you know, a bully tried to make fun of his classmate. It didn't go so well. Something like that. And so that that phraseology is like, you know, someone's reading that, they're like, oh my gosh, I wanna know what didn't go well. I wanna see this bully get on. The joke about that one clickbait headline, clickbait advertising headline that's like, you know, lose weight with this one weird trick or something like that. There were there was some Upworthy study that found that the word weird really grabbed people's attention because I think it was sort of it was slightly vague. Like a lot of the clickbait, well, the bad ones are clickbait, but a lot of the curiosity gap headlines have, you know, some element of something that's it's specific and then something is very just slightly vague because it sort of confuses or titillates the reader. So that completely changed news culture, headline culture, and also this this kind of this new model, right, where like you know people don't make money till you click. The, the, the news outlet or the media outlet doesn't make money to click on it. It also really led to like what you might call hot take culture, right? So like everyone has an opinion and a lot of the opinions may be bad or simplistic <laughs> or purely designed to make people angry. But, you know, as I've heard a newspaper editor say, a rage click is just as good as a regular click. So... <laughs> For, for me, um, in the book, I actually remember this. Some like troll account said that he was a postal worker in Ohio and he was burning Republican ballots. And that yeah. made it to like all these outlets because it was so clickworthy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was in the 2016 election. There was by, and he's actually, now this, this person, uh, Randy G. Dub, he's still kind of a Twitter personality. That might've been his rise to fame. Yeah, he just wrote something like, I love working at the Ohio post office and burning ballots that say they voted for Trump or something like that, which is like, you know, it was many reasons that it was just totally unfact-checked, but Rush Limbaugh even, I think, reported on it. But yeah, I mean, that you know, like a lot of news has suffered because the amount of money that you make off online reading is much less than print media. Like there's a saying in the industry that some of your listeners might have heard that's 
it goes a print dollars become digital dimes become mobile pennies and it's actually it's an accurate description of the ratio between how much a print ad is worth versus an online ad versus a mobile ad there's about a 100 to 1 ratio between the value of, of somebody buying a paper and looking at a print ad versus someone seeing the same ad on their tiny mobile phone. How does that affect journalists' salary? Yeah, well, it's part of why the number of journalists in the country has declined by something astonishing. It's like more than half since, two, since 2000. I don't remember the exact number now, but it's like the number of journalists in the country has just gone down precipitously. All kinds of outlets have shuttered. A lot of local newspapers have shuttered. A lot of local newspapers, like, rely more on reports from AP and things from the Times or the Post that they reprint because they can't afford a full staff that they used to. A lot of online outlets don't have many copy editors anymore. Like, they've cut that. And on top of that, you know, there's huge burnout in the industry because, like, especially for online writing, because, like, to be a good writer for some of the sort of, you know, the, the, the types of outlets that put out, you know, where one writer put out five or six pieces a day, places like Refinery29 or formerly Huffington Post. I don't know if it's quite that way anymore. You know, it kind of rewards being able to really quickly pound out these types of stories. And it, you just, it just burns out writers so fast. And you, you're mostly doing re-reporting, like, report, like aggregate news type accumulation stuff. Um, so a lot of the work might not even really be your own. It's just kind of like you're re-reporting on Times or Post stories and also it's it's also made the news industry sort of uneven in terms of who gets to break stories like there's it's kind of like the economy in that way where there's like a couple oligarchs and everyone else is sort of just barely getting by so like the times the post ap writers i mean they they do a lot of the journalism that ends up with big breaking stories and everyone else kind of has to pick up the scraps because the people at the top are continue to do well but everybody else is not not so much I remember in the night, like, I don't remember personally, but in the 90s, a reporter for, I believe, San Jose News, Gary mm -hmm. Webb, uncovered, did this great investigative piece about the CIA Nicaragua drug connection. And that was very, basically a local outlet. And I don't see that happening again yeah. today, for example. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, very few, the number of regional papers that have international bureaus is pretty small. I mean, it's what, the Times? I believe he was a local reporter. It was just that he kind of walked into the courthouse uh, oh, and wow. saw a case and then just like he uncovered this whole thing. And hmm. uh, we'll never, uh, for me, it's just that he had time to do all that investigation and it looked from a local news station and we don't have that. Um, we can't yeah. get those investigations anymore. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's interesting too because I mean, I think like someone might read the book and read that chapter because I have a whole kind of chapter about journalism and media and how it's been changed. I think someone might read that and be apt to sort of think like, you know, oh, this is so, you know, this is super bad and we need to support journalists or we need to sort of go back to the world it was before with print media. But, but it's interesting because, because th there were other problems with journalism in sort of the, the you know, liberal capitalist m mold that it's in that were kind of intractable that Silicon Valley really drew out more. Like it's like, Journalism is like super important to the function of democracy. I mean, you know, that's that's why they call it the fourth estate. But it's not nearly, you know, if, if, if it's sort of controlled usually by a few wealthy oligarchs who own the newspapers and magazines, like, you know, even if they're supposed to have editorial independence, I'm sure that, you know, everybody who's worked anywhere that's supposed to have some kind of independence in that sense or is, knows that the boss, you're always going to cut out to the boss in some way. 
And it's kind of like, it's, I, I think a lot of people are realizing that journalism isn't totally compatible. It, it's necessary for democracy, but it's not totally compatible with like capitalism. Like, we're miss, like you said, we're missing all these big stories that just don't get reported on or covered anymore because there's not the resources. It just means that democracy is going to sort of become more <laughs> corrupt than they are now. And power goes unchecked, like, like, you know, people who are misbehaving don't get caught. So I, it's like, I don't know, I've kind of started to think that we need either like some type of tenure university type model for journalists or more kind of like, you know, super independent state run type systems like what Iceland has, um, where they also do get tenure so they can report on whatever they want or something, something like that. But I kind of, I feel like Silicon Valley has, obviously, we're much worse (laughs) off for what they've done. But I'm hopeful that there will be some type of shift in thinking. And you're already sort of seeing that with the rise of a lot of nonprofit you know, like media, news media outlets that, that do a lot of really amazing stuff, like ProPublica, I think is the best example I can think of. And, it, you know, nonprofits have their own issues and are kind of often tied to like rich people's money in any way. But, you know, I don't know. It, it remains to be seen how that will change and evolve. Since we're talking about independent media, I'm going to use this as our weekly plug. We are exclusively funded by you, the listener. So please go to historically.substack.com slash subscribe, and it's only $5 a month, so we can have wonderful content that's not censored by anyone. I also, looking through some old newspapers, and American, like, back in the 1930s, every labor union had its own newspaper. Yeah, So we're losing a lot of working class perspectives from there, too. How do we get that? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, that's a good point. You're raising another excellent problem and something that Silicon Valley has exacerbated, which is like, so I'm, you know, I'm not that old. I'm, I'm 33. But I remember when I was a kid going on the internet and how much more fractured or balkanized it felt back then. Like, you know, if, if you wanted to have a website or talk about yourself, like you want to have the equivalent of a Facebook profile or the equivalent of a WordPress blog, the equivalent of a YouTube page. You know, you just had to make it yourself. You had to, you had to, you had to buy web space or make a GeoCities page or something like that. The internet was really decentralized. That's that's the word I was really looking for. And and there were even these things. I encourage listeners to Google this because they're they're really kind of amazing artifacts. You can get them for like five bucks on eBay. Google the internet yellow pages. There were these like thick volumes that looked like real yellow pages that were made by I think it was Osborne was the publisher back in the 90s, the mid 90s. And it's like, it's like, this is how you surf the web is you're like, you open this book. And it's like, I want to learn about dancing, you go to the dancing page, and it'll be like, here's a cool site about, you know, um, doing the rumba. And like, you know, the website would always be like, 50 characters long, it would be like, you know, geocities slash this slash that, you know, tilde. Uh, (laughs) so, So different, right. And so the internet was really decentralized. And nowadays, what has happened to the internet? It's, extremely centralized right i mean like no one you almost never go to somebody's individual website like you're more apt to check out their facebook page or their twitter page to get a sense of what they think or feel or their youtube page or something like that right i mean all so much of internet traffic you know that's not watching tv i mean is consigned to like facebook twitter like assorted things that google hosts video site or like youtube which is sort of i mean that's hybrid between social media and entertainment things like that. You're, you know, you're living your Instagram, you're living your whole life. You're, you're browsing just within a few different um, sites. It's, it's become, it's become really centralized. Right. And so that's, 
also that changes like the power dynamic on it, right? Because that means that those owners of those sites wield a tremendous amount of power to influence and shape human thought, right? What we think, what we think is important, what we value. And that goes back to what you're talking about before too, with like, what is this kind of, what is the mental health regime of the internet and what does it encourage us to? Well, I mean, all the social media sites are constantly tweaking their algorithms to make you spend more time on them, right? They're not serving you content that makes you feel good. They're not, not necessarily. I mean, maybe it just is an ancillary side effect, but the point of them is to make money and they make money the more time you stare at them. And so they want you to stare at them for as long as possible. So they have algorithms that study, you know, they observe what people stare at, what tweets or Instagram posts people stare at, and then they make sure you see more of those. And they have a vague sort of algorithmic personality profile on you that makes sure that it, it understands what you're thinking and feeling. And, and so, the enti- so the huge amount of the web is just, it just revolves around this, the, the profit motive, and sort of manipulating people to spend as much time on them as possible and maybe compete with your friends to get the most likes or hearts or whatever, um, to feel just bad about enough about yourself or just not quite satisfied or say it enough that you keep scrolling. You scroll forever. The infinite scroll. I mean, that's, that's a new... Rel- in, the, in the history of the internet, the, the idea that you can scroll infinitely on a page like it's like your Facebook or Instagram timeline is actually a relatively new phenomenon. So <laughs> yeah, we got a little off track there, but that's, you know, but that's, that's kind of ties together your, old, your other question, what we were talking about before too. So. Since we've talked about so many problems, like what is to be done next, I guess? <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple ways of answering that, right? Because you could sort I could sort of answer, you know, the state of the internet, what will happen to the future of the internet, the state of Silicon Valley as an industry, right? And I, I think the answer to the latter question about Silicon Valley as an industry is that for a long time, you know, the way that, and again, I'm talking about kind of the, the first world Silicon Valley again. So like the technicians and programmers um, more in, Ameri- in the United States and Europe. But there, in those places at least, for decades, Silicon Valley, because it was sort of an ethos, because it was kind of like it, it had this brand of being innovative and um, the future itself. I mean, the word technology and the word progress are really linked to a lot of people's minds. And because of that, you know, a lot of people, I think especially Americans, like young Americans, like say you're going off to college and you look at the world and you're like, you're like, well, you know, I want to, I want to make the world a better place. And I, and I don't have any faith in government. Um, cause I'm, you know, cause I'm an American. I've been told that <laughs> you, you change things by being an entrepreneur or something. So I'm going to go work in Silicon Valley because they're, they're making the future. And then, you, know, you sort of arrive and you're fed good snacks and you have a comfortable chair, but you're like tremendously overworked and overexploited and you're working really hard and you're in all likelihood doing something like, um, you know, figuring out ways to make these rich people <laughs> more money. You're, you've fallen into an ethos. And I think that what's really interesting is that Silicon Valley was able to get away with exploiting its workers much more and much harsher because they bought into this ethos. And that is starting to fade in the last five years that started to fade. A lot of people don't think Silicon Valley is good anymore. They don't think of it as this innate, innate good, innately good thing. They think of it as much more evil, much more sinister, exploitative. And, and that's actually a really good thing because it means, A, that people who work there are starting to talk about unionizing. And for the first time, there are serious efforts for white-collar workers to unionize. There's already a lot of blue-collar workers unionized, like people who are like AT&T, Verizon technicians, things like that in Silicon Valley. But for white-collar workers to unionize, for programmers to realize that they're actually being exploited, and other white-collar workers to realize that in Silicon Valley is kind of unprecedented. And 
you know, I think that once there's more kind of like worker power in Silicon Valley, the motives will really change and shift, right? I mean, I think that the politics will switch from being more libertarian to being kind of more, more lefty. And, you know, that will be ultimately a good thing for the world because, you know, since all these platforms that people use, since we're in sort of this platform capitalism phase, if, if all the platforms are programmed by libertarians, they're going to subtly reflect libertarian beliefs and ideals. And if they're all programmed by people who have more of a communal, you know, sort of bottom up instead of a top down perspective on how the world should function, then I think that we'll, we'll see that trickle into politics and culture a little more too. For me, the surprising thing from your book is how Apple makes 450000 from yeah, each program. Yeah, it's around that. No, I, wasn't it, I don't think it's programmers, each worker. Each worker, yes. But then they get, get, get paid like, I don't know, 50000 or something, just making that up. Well, well, yeah, well, actually, what's so amazing about the statistic, and I, again, I don't remember the exact number, and it may have changed since the book came out last year, but, um, but yeah, but what's amazing about that is it, it's like, it's like all of Apple's 110,000 employees. So it's like, that includes like the genius bar person, you know? So like, if they have a programmer who's making $200,000, which is like a totally feasible sum for a senior programmer, and then, you know, that person is still being underpaid in terms of what they're worth or in terms of the profit they bring to the company on average, you know, or average revenue per employee. And, and so is the genius bar worker, though. So is the, the clerk who's making $18 an hour at, you know, the mall in San Jose, like selling people iPods or something like that. It reminds me of this caller that came to Tom Hartman's show. And he was mm-hmm. like, like, apparently he had a retirement plan and he got like $450,000. Yeah. And then Tom Hartman just took out his calculator and said, the company made $7 million from you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> do, you still, yeah. do you still support capitalism? And that guy really had to think. So yeah. that's kind of a good point. Not to mention the side effect of people, even though they get more money, their life has not improved because the rent has increased. And yeah. so you talk about how some landlords were being paid in like Google stock or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, that was back in sort of the glory days of Silicon Valley. Yeah, there's stories of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So basically, so at this point, even if their salaries have risen, everything like rent is like four thousand dollars for a little closet. Oh yeah. Oh oh my god! I, I remember seeing this like dystopian video where mm-hmm. these people were living in these little bunker. I don't know. Were they bunkers? Like it's it. It's yeah. still, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's oh, in Silicon yeah. Valley and all these workers are like little bunk beds and it's like all in a row. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, and I think the saddest thing about the Bay Area is a great example of this where like just a few people's wages are so high that, you know, rent rose for everybody, even for people who did not have high wages. And that's kind of the real tragedy of it is like, I mean, I don't know, it's not like even you know, a huge number of the population is making a super high wage. It's just it's pretty small, but it's such a, it's so out of whack with what everyone else is making that everybody suffers for it. And I lived in the Bay Area on and off for 10 years and just, you know, was always struggling to find housing and affordable housing. It's just, it's just one of the most just awful struggles because of the, it's, it's one of the social side effects of the tech industry. And it's ironic too, because they make, they make so much money and they're just not taxed, right? Like the tax you could easily tax them and, and have the, the pay, pay for like social housing or something like that. But it's just, you know, it's not happening. They have too much power to stop that type of thing from happening. They're really, they're really part of the problem. I think like another dystopian story I've heard is this programmer who's working for Google, making $100,000, but then he's living in his car because he can't afford rent or something mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. these are always spun as 
feel good stories in the news instead of what's wrong with our world kind of stories. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and that's um that also happens not just with Silicon Valley, but like you see all these, yeah, I've seen this genre of sort of tweet about this where it's like, you know, this heartwarming story of a of a of a boy who who raised, you know, ten thousand dollars so his mom didn't have to die of cancer or something like that. And it's like, well, it's it's more horrifying that he had to do that in the first place. Like, you know, <laughs> things yes. like that, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's fun. But yeah, yeah, no, I think that, that seems like, it seems like something generally sort of that, that living in kind of a, a dying empire with a lot of income inequality, it, it, it's almost like you see a lot of media trying to justify the, <laughs> just the misery of living in this really kind of broken economy and, and just, just broken society. Uh, yeah, no, I, I just remember this, like, how th- this story about this, Silicon Valley engineer who works for Google who's, who lives in his car like yeah. like that's why I just remember that one um because it was so bad for him and like right now like when is Amazon or Google or Facebook or whatever getting too powerful like in that they'd need to be broken down regulated nationalized like how do we figure out that point I think we're way past that point with Amazon yeah what do you think yeah you're right I think we're past that point too I think, well, you know, it's interesting because a couple of the companies you mentioned are very different, but I think like we have a big problem right now with regards to like what we, what you might call the commons being privatized, you know? So like Facebook controls a huge amount of what people, how people communicate, how people think, feel, interact, and what news they read. It's too much power in the hands of one private company it just, it just doesn't make sense like and it has a distorting effect because they want you to look at, at things that make them money you know they don't want you to look at certain posts that don't make them money so they're they're distorting what the what the commons are that seems to me like it should be nationalized or split up into multiple companies and nationalized or something like that and should have been a while ago or actually really maybe sold get you know to becomes like a like a worker-owned cooperative or something like that because you know, if employee owned, if it was an employee owned enterprise, they would have a different incentive in mind for how they operate their, their thing. Amazon is the tricky because, you know, I mean, this kind of the sad thing about the way that government works is that like, there's just so much money that these companies have to, it, it's not very expensive to manipulate public policy, you know, through lobbying. It's not that expensive and donating to specific candidates. And so, you know, like the, the, the amount, the sum it takes is kind of paltry compared to the amount of, of profit you'll make by sort of controlling who is elected to city council in Seattle, say, or what types of laws the Washington state or legislature pass or the, or the federal government too. This is kind of a tangential answer, but like um, there are some groups that have been working to sort of get money out of politics by having you know, a new constitutional amendment, like, like move to amend that would make it so, you know, you can't have like political action committees at all. And um, I think some, some proposals, you know, like would make it so it, it would make it effectively so the corporations can't really donate to support specific candidates. And it would, I think it would really change our democracy for the better and make them less kind of oligarchic. And so, so honestly, before, even before something like Amazon is broken up, which I think doing something like ending the, the super PAC influence would, would really curtail a lot of the power that these things have, which would, which would then make them, you know, it'd make it easier for them to be, for people to kind of democratically decide how to regulate them, how to tax them, and if they can't tax. Because currently, I mean, Amazon wields so much power that even the faintest suggestion of taxing it more results in them kind of like freaking out. I mean, I don't know if you, your listeners may know about what 
something something like this happened in Seattle. Um, there was some type of pretty modest Amazon tax that they were trying to get through, and, and the company kind of you know revolted and manipulated the city council into undoing it. So if we can get laws in place that can stop that from even happening in the first place, then I think we'll be in a much better place. Well, in New York, they tried to do this really weird takeover of like this area in Queens to build their, I don't right. know. But thankfully, we called their bluff. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of problems like in the way even like basic government functions like there's no reason why they need to give tax concessions like each city yeah. they like go away we don't need you right. we'll make a uh, we'll make a city own whatever function you have and things like that yeah. but so, yeah city so owned internet or something there's like a low like an expectation from the government that's it's subservient to business yeah. that we need to even educate and change and yeah this is this sounds like hard work and i hope we can get it done before we hit that point of no return with climate change. <laughs> yeah, me too, certainly. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people find you? I guess at salon.com, um, but do you have any other um, social media that where people can find you? Yeah, um, I so I'm on Twitter. It's just at Keith Spencer. Both my first and last name are spelled the most normal ways. K-E-I-T-H-S-P-E-N-C-E-R. And uh, if they want to buy the book, um, just Google A People's History of Silicon Valley. And I recommend buying it from small press distributors if they still have it. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to the, um, to the publishers. Uh, uh, well, whatever link you tell me on the description box. Okay, great. Great. Sounds good. Yeah, it's well, a, it was a pleasure being on. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And you should come up like, well, are you, well, are you guys, are you going to work on another book? Like what's next for you? Yeah. So I write a lot about, um, so I, I should say, I also have a bachelor's in astronomy and I used to do astronomy research. And some of your listeners might know me for, I've written a lot about like the billionaires who are planning to sort of colonize space. And my next book is going to be about that. We need to have you back again. Cause I'm like a big, uh, I've kind of wanted to do like a, history of the universe kind of episode so oh yeah be happy to okay so we're gonna have you back in a few months to talk about i guess though for me when i see billionaires colonizing space the movie i think of is elysium oh um, yeah that was, but yeah. i hope the future turns out to be more star trek but we'll see i know yeah <laughs> same, same okay well have a great rest of the evening then great yes you too thank you so much okay bye Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.